our study in First John. I mentioned last week we were kind of going to land the airplane this week. I told you to, as Alistair Begg always says, you can put your lap trays up and put your seatbelt on because we're coming in for a landing. And I said we'd land the plane this week. Last week we got down to 10,000 feet. And I was going to hopefully land the plane this week, but the control tower said, no, we're going we're gonna to make you circle around for a few uh, more days, and hopefully next week we will land this plane and we will end our study of First John. I hope it has been a good study for us. I have enjoyed going through this book again. Um, and we come to these closing verses that are kind of the grand finale, and John is going to be repeating just some themes that he's talked about in his book. And uh, what we find here are Christian certainties. We began to look at some of these last week. And these certainties we have based upon the word of God and based upon the work of Christ. And John says to us, there are things that we know. There are things that we are assured of. And when John speaks, he's speaking with boldness. He's speaking dogmatically. He's giving Christian affirmations which are beyond all dispute, which we as believers can rest upon. There are things that we know, that we are assured of, and we affirm. Now, as we think about this, There are things that we know and that we are certain of and things that we are persuaded of. And some people would look at us and they would say, well, that's arrogant to think that you have certain truth, that you have truth. But we do. And it's not because of who we are or what we know. It comes to us by the grace of God. What we know, what we are assured of, is not resting upon who we are or what we have done, but what God has done for us in Christ. And so we are thankful for these things that we have come to know and are assured of. Last week, John tells us why he wrote this book. I'm writing this. It's back in verse 13. I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know, that you may be assured that things are right between you and God and you are forgiven of your sins and you have this most precious gift of eternal life. And then we have, as a result, some of the assurances that we have that flow out of this salvation is we are able to pray And we have this confidence, we have this certainty that we can ask of our God. And if we ask according to his will, he will give us that which we ask. He will hear us. Today we are going to look at two more of these things as he concludes this book. He uses the word we know, again, he uses this three times. We see it in verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. The second one, and we'll look at this one today as well, we know that we are of God. and The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we've pushed the third one off till next week, and it's in verse 20. 
we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may ha- that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ this is the true God and eternal life so we begin first of all with the first one we know we know that whoever is born of God does not sin and i think what we find here is there is a certainty of victory over sin Sin is a big issue. The Bible addresses this. And we recognize that, the, that as a result of the gospel, that the power of sin to condemn us, we were under the wrath of God because of sin, that Jesus Christ himself has made atonement for our sin. We've seen this in 1 John. John, I'm, John says that here in his love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation to turn away the wrath of God for us. And our sins are forgiven. The power of sin to condemn us has been dealt with at Calvary through Jesus Christ. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. This is what Christ has done for us. But here, John speaks about another way in which we have victory over sin. We have victory over sin's dominion. We have victory over sin's dominion. This has to do with our own personal life. We recognize that sin is something that is something that we not only separated us from God, but controlled us, and we were a slave to sin. But it is through the gospel that we have forgiveness of sin. Now, John states here something that he's already stated in his book that is troubling sometimes when we read the scriptures, and it is this, that whoever is born of God does not sin. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Does anyone here sin this week? Okay, thank you. I'm glad to know that I am not alone. But what does John mean when he says that whoever is born of God does not sin? Well, we've already addressed this, and John is not speaking about sinlessness. If this is what John meant, that all those who are born of God, they will never sin, then there really is no one who is born of God because we all sin. And John has made that clear in his book. He has said, if we say that we're without sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins. And so John recognizes we sin. And John says, I'm writing to you because I don't want you to sin. But if you do sin, I want you to know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he he has made propitiation for our sins. And so as we think about this, John's not talking about sinlessness. And um, he uses here the, the present tense. And he says those who have been born of God, they are not continually sinning. And I think that's important. The NIV translates this. They do not continue in sin. The ESV says they 
do not keep on sinning. As we've gone through 1 John, we have seen that what John is wanting to see is the video of our life. It's not the snapshot of our life, but the video of the Christian life is this, that his life is not going to be marked by a habitual sin, but he is one who is going to be making strides in holiness, in godliness, not perfectly, but his life is not, it is not dominated by sin. God is saving him from sin. In Romans 5.21, Paul says there that as a result of sin, as a result of the fall, that sin reigned in death. It reigned. And in the gospel, God is breaking that reign of sin in the lives of his people. Sin does no longer reign in the life of those who have been born of God. Its power has been broken. And we confess that, I think, when we are baptized. In Romans 6, Paul says that that when we are baptized, we, we are united with Christ. We died with him. We died to that old man that we were. And we were buried with him. And we were raised up together with Christ. We were raised up to walk in newness of life. And we are to reckon that we are dead to sin, Paul says. You need to reckon that in your life and that we are alive unto God. And he goes on in Romans 6.14 to say, Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. Now what it's suggesting and implied is that it did before we were born of God. That we were under the reign of sin. We were under the power of sin. Under its dominion. But something has changed. Romans 6.22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. God, by his grace, has broken the, the, the dominion of this sin. It no longer reigns. It no longer has dominion, Paul says. Now, it remains, but it does not reign. It remains, and we have remaining corruption that is in us. But the mark of a believer is that his heart has been changed by the grace of God. He's taken out a stony heart, given a heart that is alive unto God. And and the law of God is written upon his heart. And there is the fear of God that has been placed there by the grace of God so that he now lives, she now lives in new and different ways. So it remains, but it doesn't reign. We were its slave before. We were under its power. But that reign has been broken through the gospel, through this new birth. It, it remains, but it doesn't reign. In Galatians 5, Paul talks about this irreconcilable conflict that goes on in the lives of every child of God. There's that lust of the flesh. There's that remaining corruption that is still there. And it is lusting and, 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 and there is the spirit. And these are opposed to one another. But a believer knows that. He knows of this battle that goes on within his life. And so in the life of the believer, there is a, a resistance now to sin. Whereas before, we just gave way to it. Now there's a resistance. There is a fight against it. There is a repenting of sin, to hate and to forsake that sin. 
And this will be characteristic of a believer. 1 John 1, 9 is a present tense. If we are those who are continually confessing our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Sin's reign has been broken, and the believer is one who now is confessing his sin, repenting of it by the grace of God. So sin no longer reigns in the life of the believer, even though it remains, and there is ongoing battle And there's temptation, and we often fail. It will be the mark of the believer that they are dealing with sin. And sin will not have its victory. It will not have its dominion over us. Now, how does this come about? Well, John tells us, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin in this way. What brings this about in the life of the believer It is what the Bible calls the new birth or regeneration. This is something that John is especially mindful of and writes about it. And we've already seen this in 1 John. He's probably used this half a dozen times in here. He speaks about it in John 3 as he speaks about Jesus, as he talks with Nicodemus, that there is this new birth, this regeneration that is brought about by the grace of God, and every time I believe that it is used, when it says someone is born again, it's in the passive voice. And what does that mean? It is something that happens to us. It's not something that we bring about. It is something that God brings about. And sometimes I think in our day and age, often when we hear some people speaking, They speak as if this new birth is something that they have brought about. And they they talk about something that they have done. And they look at the new birth as something that happened because I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or I, I went forward at church and I prayed the sinner's prayer. And therefore I was born again. But that's not the way the Bible presents it. It is something that we are passive in. It is something that God himself brings about. He is the one that does this. And as I was thinking about that, as we think about spiritual rebirth, we can think about our physical birth. When you were born physically, people don't ask you, how were you born? They might ask you, where were you born? Or uh, 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 what was the date of your birth? When were you born? But we would think it very strange if they would say to us, what did you do to be born? Well, what did you do to be born? Well, if there's your mother standing around, she'll say, don't be asking him. Don't ask little Johnny. Ask me, and I can tell you, I carried that little Johnny for nine months And some of those months were very hard and very difficult. I had morning sickness. I would just smell some foods and I would throw up. I carried that little guy inside of me for all those times and sleepless nights and back pain. And my feet sometimes were so swollen I couldn't put my shoes on. And if they weren't swollen, I couldn't bend over to put them on anyway. And when that day came for that birth... I was in labor for 20 hours, screaming the whole way. 
And that's how little Johnny was born. He didn't have anything to do with it. He was passive in that whole process. And so it is with our spiritual birth. It wasn't about something that we did. And I think the Bible pulls these illustrations from everyday life to speak about the new birth when we think about a physical birth. We were passive in our physical birth, and we are passive in spiritual birth as well. And we're able to understand just from these physical realities of the physical birth of what takes place spiritually. We were born by the grace of God. It was God who did this. It was God who gave us new life, who brought about this life within us that was not there. And Ty read from us that passage in Ephesians 2, where it tells us that we were those who were dead in our sins and in our transgressions. And what did God do? But he made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. This is what God has done, this new birth, this new creation that has given us a new life that leads us in a new way. In Romans 5.21, it says that grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so as a result of this new birth, this new life that God has given to us, there is this victory that we now have in dealing with sin in our life. We're not sinless, but we are dealing with sin. We're not living in patterns of sin and disobedience. By God's grace, as new creations, we are seeking to live in God-honoring ways. And it is God's grace who is reigning through us and in us unto eternal life. There's something more that we see here. Not only is there a change that has taken place within us, something has changed within us, but we also have an enemy that is outside of us. And so Peter, or excuse me, John goes on to speak about the fact that there is victory that we have over Satan's power. God in his grace gives us power over remaining sin that is in us, but there is also certainty with regard to victory over Satan's power. You remember Jesus when he spoke to Peter on the night in which he was betrayed in the upper room and telling Peter that you're going to deny me three times. And Satan, he wants to sift you like wheat. What do you do when you sift wheat? You separate the chaff from the wheat. This is what Satan wants to do. He wants to separate you from me. We have an enemy. Peter says that, He is a roaring lion seeking whom he would devour. But John wants us to know that this enemy is not going to have victory over us. And so there is victory that we have over Satan's power as well. In the second part of this verse, he says that those are born of God. They do not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. Now, there's a different way in which... Some of the newer translations translate this. The New King James and the King James says, he who has been born of God keeps himself 
And there are many ways in which the scripture calls us to do that. We are to put off the old man. We're to put on the new man. But many of the the new translations have a different rendering of it because in many of the manuscripts, rather than the word himself, it has the word him. But he who has been born of God keeps him, keeps this child of God who's been born of God. And who is this one who has been begotten of God or born of God. And many believe this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this comes out in the NIV, the one who was born of God keeps them safe. The ESV says, but he who was born of God protects him. The New Living Translation says, for God's son holds them securely and the evil one cannot touch them. And many believe that What is in view here is not the one who has been born of God speaking of us, but the one who has been begotten by God, the Son of God, the only unique one, Son of God, the one who is eternally begotten of the Father. He is the one who keeps us. He's the one who protects us. And this word keeps is a strong word. It is used of guards when they're guarding their prisoners in a prison. They're keeping watch over them. And so it is the Son of God keeps watch over his own. For this reason, he keeps them so that the wicked one does not touch him, does not touch him. And this is a Stronger word than maybe what touch brings out, but it has the idea of to lay hold of him, to get a grip upon him. And Jesus is one who is protecting us. He is the one who is holding on to us. And we read in John 10 of the Good Shepherd where it says that he gives to us eternal life and there is no one that can pluck us out of his hand, nor is anyone able to pluck us out of the Father's hand. It is Jesus Christ who is holding on to us so that this wicked one, and this is a nickname for Satan, that he cannot touch him. He cannot harm him. He cannot bring ultimate danger or ultimate harm to him. And when Jesus said to Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Peter, I want you to know I am praying for you. I am praying for you that when you return, you will help encourage your brethren. We have a high priest who prays for us, who intercedes for us, and who will overcome his and our enemy. And so in view here is, I think, in this verse is what we often call the doctrine of preservation and perseverance. The child of God is going to persevere in faith. And the reason they do is because it is God, it is Christ who is holding on to us, who is preserving us, and who is keeping us. And I am so thankful for that, that he keeps us and he keeps us to the end. Well, the second we know is in verse 19. Here is the certainty of a change of kingdoms. We know that we are of God And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. It's an amazing statement. We know this, that we are of God. And the the Greek preposition here is the word 
out of. We are out of God. And I think it's just another way of saying we have been born of God. Our life comes to us from God. All that we have as believers is out of God. It is out of him and his grace and his mercy and his kindness to us. And because we are out of God and we belong to him, we have been brought into his kingdom. The whole world lies under the sway of the evil one, the wicked one. And again, it's a reference to Satan. It's an amazing statement that the whole world is under the authority and the power of Satan. He is the God of this age. And God in his grace has delivered us from that world, from the dominion of our own sin, the power of sin. But we were under the sway of this one, the the wicked one, held captive, Paul says, to do his will. Now, a lot of times people certainly are not aware of that. Certainly the Pharisees were not aware of that, where Jesus said, if I set you free, you'll be free indeed. And they say, hey, we don't, we don't need anybody to set us free. And he says, hey, you are of your father, the devil, and the will of your father you will do. Now, the Pharisees would not certainly agree with that, and neither would anybody in the world. They, they wouldn't acknowledge that. But this is what the word of God says. That apart from Christ, we are under the dominion and the power of the evil one. And we are held sway to him. But what has happened in the gospel? John says, we know this, that we are of God. We are out of him. Our life has come to us from him. In Colossians, these amazing words, Paul says this, as he's, uttering a prayer to God, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and he has translated us into the kingdom of his own dear beloved son. If you're a Christian today, this is something else that God has done for you. You were under the sway of this wicked one, the God of this age, doing his will as you were thinking you were just doing your own will. You were doing the bidding of Satan to live your life estranged from God, away from God, just living your life for yourself. And it was God who in grace has translated us and brought us into the kingdom of his own dear beloved son. And John says we have certainty that there has been a change of kingdoms that has come as we have of the father been brought into this kingdom. Peter speaks of, the, of this in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him, the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We all love rescue stories, don't we? Here is the greatest rescue story. And if we're a Christian, this is something that has happened to us by the grace of God, the sovereign grace of God. He's taken us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom 
of his dear beloved son. And thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that he has done this. It is our privilege today to come to the Lord's table and to remember the price that has been paid for our salvation, to remember the things that God has done for us in Christ, who is the only mediator between God and men. It is our privilege today to remember this work of Christ. And as John speaks here, we're reminded also that he's broken the power of sin in our life. He's translated us into the kingdom of his dear beloved son. And all, great, all glory must go to him because salvation is of the Lord. I invite you to take your insert this morning and we'd like to sing as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. We want to sing. Um,